How is it that God is justified and holy in his anger and judgment? How is it that he can do it while being a completely loving God? To, uh, to discover that, I suggest that we start at the beginning. Uh, the, the very first things that we learn in the Bible about God's character, about God. And interestingly enough, uh, as often as there are stories of judgment and of man's sin uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, God's anger is not mentioned in the first book of the Bible. Uh, God's anger is not mentioned in Genesis at all. But in Genesis chapter 6, we do see God's first emotions uh, that is mentioned in the Bible here. That it's, it's explicitly stated that he's feeling these things. And it's in the case of the flood. So we're going to read there. In Genesis 6, we're just going to start in verse 1. Where it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came down to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were the old men of renown. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So here in the beginning of Genesis 6, as God is about to deal out one of the most famous judgments in all of the Bible. He's about to flood the earth because things have become so wicked and so bad. But it says that why he does this in Genesis 6, the reasons that are stated is because he regretted that he had made man. That he felt regret, that he was grieved to his heart. That he was sad, disappointed, distressed at the state that mankind was in. Not, not that he was angry at what they had done and he was going to lash out in his anger, but he was grieved to his heart. That he was sorry that he had made man, that he regretted it. Well then keep reading with me. So we'll begin to get a fuller picture here. In verse 9 it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So here in verses 11 through 13, we get maybe a little bit more of a clear picture as to what's going on. That the earth and man is corrupt in God's sight. It's filled with violence. He says, for flesh had corrupted their way. For they had done it. For they had corrupted themselves. And then in verse 13, it's interesting because God says to Noah, in our English translations, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. In its most plain translation in the Hebrew, and from what I've read, it seems 
that this verse has, what God is saying to Noah has more of the connotation of uh, man's, man's end has come up before me. The end of man has come up before me. As if the way that they've corrupted themselves is leading to their destruction. That their end has come up before me. This path of wickedness is leading to their destruction and it has come up before me. And I'm going to put a stop to it before they do it to themselves. And so he decides so that is what causes him to determine to end it all. Because it's been filled with the violence of man. That they've corrupted themselves. And so God expedites this process that man has set himself on out of his grief and regret. Not out of anger. Or at least that's what the text says. Then we see a similar pattern in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, that God hears the cries and hears the, uh, the wickedness, it says, of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's going to destroy them. And Abraham comes and pleads to him and says, God, please, even if there's so many people, don't do it. And he says, if there's so many, I won't. And, and again, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, on down the line. And then God does eventually destroy it, but he still saves Lot and his family from the destruction. Though we see the same kind of pattern, it never mentions God's anger in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but a similar pattern that, that, that God is grieved, uh, that he hears of their wickedness and sees the path that they've set themselves on. The same way that the people in Genesis 6 had, that they had set themselves on this path of wickedness and destruction, and it's come up before God, and he's going to finish it. Before they can do it to themselves. So, so what, before we even get into God's anger and how that's tied to his judgment, because it will be later on in the Bible, uh, what, what does that teach us about God's divine judgment? That, that when it's introduced here in, in the text, uh, in the opening of the story of the Bible, God's judgment isn't connected to his anger at all. Uh, at least in the, it, when we're introduced to God's judgment, it doesn't seem to be. It's never mentioned in connection with it. Now, it will be. But when God's divine judgment is introduced to us in the biblical story, it's not connected to his anger. Well, if you'll flip with me to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 is now where we'll get the first mention of God being angry. Exodus chapter 4. Greg actually mentioned this in his lesson this morning, uh, briefly, when he was talking about Moses at the burning bush. And here we have the first mention of God's anger. That God is speaking to Moses at the burning bush, like Greg mentioned this morning. He, he thinks he's going to see uh, this great anomaly of this, of this bush that's burning up, but it's not being consumed. And he goes over to check it out and see what's going on. And it's God's presence there, calling him out, telling him, I've got a mission for you, Moses. And Moses four times uh, tries to make an excuse or say, it's not me, I'm not the guy, somebody else please. Uh, and verse 12, if you're there in Exodus 4 now, we get time number five, a fifth time now that Moses is saying, not me, send somebody else, making an excuse. Starting in verse 12 there in Exodus 4. It says, now therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. This is God speaking to Moses. But he, Moses, said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak. 
Well, behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and, his, and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. Verse 15 is a little bit of a tongue twister. But we see here what's so interesting. The first mention of God's anger in the Bible. And there's no lashing out of some kind of judgment or punishment, but God does exactly what Moses asks, essentially. That God is angry. It takes five times, five times Moses, no, no, I can't do this. No, I'm not good at this. No, send someone else, God. And on the fifth time, finally, the fifth time, it says God's anger is kindled against him. That it takes five of those before he's angry. And then even when he is angry, when Moses says to someone else, he says, I know that your brother Aaron speaks well. He can go and be the mouthpiece for you. And gives Moses just what he asked for. Despite his anger. And, and we'll see that, that this later, in some ways, will potentially lead to, this is why Aaron becomes the high priest and not Moses. But God gives man exactly what he asks for, even in his anger. Let's look at another example. In Exodus as well. Exodus chapter 32, if you'll turn over there. This is another popular story, another famous story in the Bible. Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. And Moses has gone up and he's on Mount Sinai and God's glory is there. He's giving the law to Moses. And down below, there's an entirely different story happening. In Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up and make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they, and he, they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So we have this famous story of God's people, his presence still there on the mountain. That they, They've made this covenant with God in chapters previous. God's presence is still on the mountain. Moses is receiving the law and he's getting ready to come down. And when he comes down in the verses following, this is what he sees at the foot of the mountain. That the people have already violated the covenant. That they've already betrayed God. In verses 10 and 11 and 12, we see mentions of God's wrath or his anger burning against the people. And his anger is burning, or his anger is hot, literally. Because his people, his covenant people, have betrayed him. But then in, in, this, in this very same section of Exodus, in 34, one of the most uh, famous and most quoted passages in the Old Testament, uh, in verses 6 and 7, we see God described as slow to anger. But how can he be slow to anger if, if three times... Three verses in a row, 10, 11, 12. 
back to back. God's his anger isn't just kindled like it was in in verse or in chapter four, but this time his his wrath or his anger is burning hot against the people. That he is heated over what has happened. And I think what should be suggested is that God is slow to anger in the sense that he won't just get angry at anything. But we see here pretty clearly that God is angered when his covenant people, his people, betray him. <clears throat> when his people rebel against him and turn their back on him, that makes him angry. That is what makes his anger hot. And so the way that he is slow to anger is that he won't just be made angry by anything. But he will be made angry by the betrayal of his people. And so if we continue to follow Israel's story, we'll see that they're going to continue to betray God. And he's going to continue to become angry in these moments of betrayal. Uh, if you'll turn over to the book of Numbers, to Numbers 14. In Numbers chapter 14, or in the book of Numbers, sorry. In the book of Numbers, there are seven stories or seven instances where God's people are rebelling against him or complaining. And at the center of these seven stories, the, the middle one is kind of the climax of this rebellion, of, of this uh, complaining and not trusting in God. Then in chapters 13 and 14, here at the center of that, we find that the people are going to send spies into the land. And they're going to spy it out for the first time as they're getting ready to go in. God is telling them it's time. We're going to go in. This is the land that I've promised you. It's going to be yours. I'm going to give it over into your hands. And so they send in 12 spies. And 10 of them come back. Or all 12, all 12 come back. But 10 of them come back and say, uh, the cities are too big, too fortified. The people are greater in number and in size than us. We absolutely cannot do this. There's no way. We, we wouldn't stand a chance. And the other, the other two say, God is on our side, trust in him, we can't do this, Joshua and Caleb, as they famously make their stand. And so then in chapter 14, starting in verse 1, we see the people's response to the report of the spies. It says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose for ourselves a leader, and we will go back to Egypt. And so the people choose to trust in themselves. They choose to trust their own wisdom instead of trusting in God's. And they rebel against God. They betray his trust by not trusting him. If that makes sense. That they betray him and rebel against him. And that makes God angry. And God's going to deal out judgment to them. But his judgment, uh, his verdict is interesting. In verse 20, if you'll look down with me, verse 20, chapter 14. Moses has pled with God not to just destroy all of the people. And in verse 20, we find this. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness 
and have yet put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. And so his response, his judgment, his punishment for the people is to give them precisely what they asked for. That when the spies come back and say, we can't do it, we can't go into this land, we won't be able to. And the people weep and grumble and complain and say, wouldn't it just be better if we died in the wilderness? Let's try and go back to Egypt. And so what is God's judgment for them but to tell them, have it your way then. You will wander in the wilderness until you die there and you won't see the land that I promised you. You will wander there for 40 years and none of you people who saw these great signs, aside from Caleb and his family and Joshua, which is mentioned in the verses following, that their punishment, that God's judgment, is precisely what the people asked for. <clears throat> that God gives them over to exactly what they wanted. That that is his response and his anger. So what is this portrait of God's anger and his judgment that are painted for us here in the opening of the Bible? In, the, in these first five books of the beginning of Israel's story as they're getting ready to go into this promised land, the portrait that's being painted for us here of God's anger and in his judgment is that his anger is a just response to the betrayal of his people. That he is angered when his people rebel against him, when they don't trust in him, when they betray him. And those are the instances when God is angry. And he doesn't lash out with some fatal blow against them because of it, but in fact he gives them over to exactly what they want. If they want to betray him and push themselves away from him, then his response, his judgment to them is often to pull away his presence and his protection from them. And that's his judgment and his anger. That his judgment, the way that his anger manifests itself is to give the people over to exactly what they've asked for. And an excellent example of this is the book of Judges. If you'll turn over to Judges chapter 2. Because we will see over and over. We're going to read several passages here all together that are going to show God do this to his people over and over. That now they've gone into the land and they're in the land that God has promised them. In Judges chapter 2. We're going to read several passages flipping through here, but we'll start in verse 10 here. In Judges 2, it says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples, who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they would no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." And so we see the people that, in verse 12, it says they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them into this land, who had blessed them with all that they had, and they abandoned him, and God's response in his anger is to abandon them. That he removes his protection from them, 
and gives them over to their enemies. Well, then turn over maybe just a page to chapter 3. To chapter 3 and verse 7. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Well, then look in chapter 4, maybe just one more page over. Starting at verse 1, it says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Well, then, maybe just another couple pages over. Hopefully, you're beginning to see the theme here. In chapter 6, in verse 1, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And once again, they betray God, they forget God, they abandon God. And so he pulls his presence from them. If they want to leave him, then he takes his presence and his protection away from them. In chapter 10, maybe just a few more, just a couple more pages over again. In verse 6, it says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the god of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For eighteen years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And so over and over and over again, we see that this is the story of Israel, the story of God's people. And the story of God's anger and his judgment. That his anger is kindled. That he is angry when his people betray him. When his people abandon him. And his judgment is not an, an explosion out of emotion. Not some lashing out because of his anger. But it is a perfectly just response. That when the people betray him and abandon him. He pulls away from them just like they want. That if that's the way that they're going to act and live, then that's exactly how he's going to respond. By pulling away his presence and protection. If that's the life that they want to live, then he will let them live it. He will let them live a life without his presence. And they will truly understand what it means to be without God. And that's how he responds in his anger. And... God's people will continually do this. You can find some of this same language that we've read here in Judges in the book of Kings as well. And ultimately, it's all building up to their exile into Babylon. The climactic event of the Old Testament, really, that it's all building up to in the story of God's people. That the people of God are going to continue to act wicked and arrogant, and they're going to make alliances with other nations instead of trusting in God. And God says, if you're going to be wicked and arrogant and trust in other nations, then I will give you over to the most wicked and arrogant nation of all, Babylon. And he hands them over to them just as they want. And if they're going to live that life, 
That's exactly what he'll give them over to. And so he gives them over to that. But the brilliance of God's plan, of God's anger, of his righteous anger, his just anger, and his judgment is that it is designed, it's done for a purpose. That when he gives man over to exactly what they want, to a life without God's presence, that it's designed to shock them into realizing just how desperately they need him. That it's designed to show just how great he is, just how loving and compassionate and full of grace he really is, how he's the one that truly blesses man. And so we find in Isaiah chapter 54, we find God telling the people that those who are faithful, that those who will recognize this, that those who will see what has happened and will turn to him and be faithful to him, that God will take care of them, that he will gather them back to himself, that those who are willing to choose God, he will not abandon those. In Isaiah 54, in verse 7, talking about their exile here, he says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will no longer be angry with you or will not rebuke you. For the mountains may, may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. That God is describing here. Verses 7 and 8 are just so powerful to me, the contrasts. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. Your Redeemer, the one who saves you. That in a moment of anger, for a brief time, I gave you over to exactly what you asked for. But with everlasting love and compassion, I will gather you back to me. For those who choose me, I will gather you back to me. And ultimately, this story of God's people, and the story of God's anger, and his judgment, and the need for us to be redeemed, points us to the story of Jesus. Because we all, at some point, have betrayed God. We've all kindled his anger. And there's a price that has to be paid for that. And the just response would be for him to give us over to exactly what we deserve, to exactly the way we behaved, that we chose in moments to betray him and to abandon him and to forget the things that he taught us and forget that he's the one that we need to trust in. And the just response for, should be for him to pull his presence away from us, 
for us to live a life without him, an eternity without him, that that's the just response. But Jesus comes and bears that weight. We see a, a very literal instance of this kind of scenario in Matthew 27. In Matthew chapter 27, I'd like us to read verses 15 through 26. We actually mentioned this, uh, the account of this in Mark briefly uh, this morning as well. But in Matthew 27, in verse 15, it says there, Jesus at this point has been delivered to Pilate, and he's before the people. In verse 15 it says, Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release to the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want to be who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And when all the people and all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children, then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. So we have this story here where there's a choice to be made. There are two men before the people. Two men before the Israelites, before God's people. And a decision to be made. And I learned recently in my studies uh, that Barabbas is uh, a name that's transliter transliterated into Greek. That it's originally, it's an Aramaic name, it's an Aramaic word. Uh, and Bar means son or son of, and Abba, Abbas, the ending, means father. Uh, that Barabbas' name literally means son of the father. <clears throat> and so before the people, they have choice between a son of the father that is a notorious criminal uh, against Rome, that he's committed murder and insurrection, it says, and things like that. And they have the true son of the father before them, and they have choice. And they will be allowed to choose what they like, and they will pay the consequences for their choice. And they choose Jesus. And in this moment, man commits one of the saddest and most gruesome sins in all of history. That they kill the Son of God. That because of every man's sin, he has to die on that cross. 
And he suffers the punishment that he, this time Jesus, is the one who's handed over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to pay the punishment of God's people. That he is the one that has to bear the weight of the judgment that all of the rest of mankind deserved. That all of man has chosen to betray God. That all of man has chosen to make God angry. And God's just response to that throughout the whole story of the Bible has been to give man exactly what they ask for in those moments. But in the story of Jesus, he gives us a redeemer. Like it's talked about in Isaiah 54, that he's going to redeem us, that with everlasting love, he will not let that be the end of the story. And so, despite the fact that we, deserve, that we absolutely deserve God's anger and God's judgment, and that it is a perfectly righteous and just anger, he does not make us bear that sentence that we deserve. And so, then we even see in, in Acts chapter 2, that when Peter is preaching at Pentecost and the people realize what they've done, uh, that they're cut to the heart. And we talked about earlier that, that the brilliance of God's judgment and the brilliance of God's plan is that there is a redemptive and restorative purpose to it all as well. And that it's designed, God's judgment, normally on his people, normally drawing his presence away from his people, is what's designed to shock them into realizing that man needs God. We need him. But man continues to fail regardless. And so this time, God steps it up a notch. That instead of us bearing it, he says, you're going to have to watch as someone else bears it for you. Maybe then you will understand. Maybe then, this time, it will shock you into realizing just how badly you need God. Just how badly we need him. And in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, the people are cut to the heart, it says. That they are shocked by that. That they do realize just how badly they need God in that moment. And so the same applies to us today because God has not changed. God is the same today as he was back then. And he is angered by the same things. He is angered by the same thing. His people betraying him. And I don't want us to get it confused because in Genesis chapter 6, when the world is wicked, God is grieved and sorrowful and full of regret. But when his covenant people, when his people who have chosen to live a life for him betray him, that is when he is angry. That when we, his people, choose to betray him, choose to abandon him, choose to disregard the things that we know to be true, the way of life that we know that we need, choosing to trust God's wisdom instead of our own. <clears throat> when we disregard that, that is when God is angry. That he looks out on the sinners who do not know him the same way Jesus does when he was here on the earth and, and he sees them and he's full of grief and he's distressed and he wants to help them and save him, save them. But he is angry when his people choose to disobey, when his people choose to abandon him.
So I implore us all that every day that we challenge ourselves to be more like Christ, to put our trust in God and in His wisdom and in His lifestyle and in His way, because that's what's pleasing to God. Because He has blessed us with a way out of His anger and judgment, even though we deserve it. <laughs>